0: This is the Journey 66 book writing podcast. I'm Melissa Parks with Dave Goetz and we are your road trip advisors. You may be at mile marker one and just thinking about an idea for a book or maybe you've gone off road in your writing and you want to restart the journey. Join Dave and me as we help you buckle up and write. Today, we are talking with Jennifer Risher, author of We Need to Talk, a memoir about wealth. Jen grew up in the middle class, learning the value of hard work and what it takes to actually earn a dollar. She, like many of us, developed stereotypes about the wealthy and what it means to be wealthy. Jennifer joined Microsoft in 1991. She met her husband. And with him, over the course of a decade, became what the wealth management community calls an ultra high net worth family. Their stock options in Microsoft and Amazon, where Jennifer's husband worked, skyrocketed. In her memoir, Jennifer shares the hidden and complex impact of wealth on identity. Today, she spoke with us specifically about why it took her so long to write and publish the book how she landed on the meta idea for the memoir, and how she created tension throughout. She also gives us a lot of hope for persevering when you feel like nobody is ever going to publish your book. Before we dive into that interview, can you tell us about the memoir pack that people can purchase?
1: So today's episode should inspire you to continue working on your memoir. Many of you are trying to write a memoir. We have on our website... Uh, something called the Memoir Writing Pack. It's only $7.66. It includes an activity sheet, a worksheet to help you work through the initial stages of writing a memoir. And you also get two videos with experts on memoir writing. One is an editor who purchases memoirs. The other is from two authors who have, have published a real popular memoir. So Go to the website, journey66.com, scroll down, click on the Writing Met Pack, and, and get started on your memoir writing journey.
0: Well, let's dig into that interview with Jennifer.
1: Today, we have Jennifer Risher, or Jen Risher, with us today. She is the author of We Need to Talk, a memoir about wealth. And we are so excited to have her with us today. She wrote the book as a memoir, which I think is a real tricky and risky and vulnerable thing to do. So, Jen, we are so grateful to have you with us. Welcome to Journey 66 Writing Podcast.
2: Thank you. It's good to be here.
1: Let's begin by giving a snapshot of what the book is about. What's the big idea of the book? And and maybe begin also and talk a little bit after that about how long it took you to write the book.
2: When I was 25, I got really lucky. I was actually lucky before that because I was born into a stable family and had access to a good education. But at 25, I had the opportunity to join Microsoft. And it was there that I met my husband, David, and I got stock that ended up being worth hundreds of thousands of dollars. And my, and David had stock worth millions, which is Crazy. And, and, and then six years later, we were married. We were expecting our first child. And he joined this small, unknown startup that was selling books on the Internet called Amazon.com. And the company went public. We were in our early 30s and we had more money than we could really wrap our heads around. So my book is a, my story. I mean, I want to say up front, money makes life easier. I am extremely fortunate, but I was surprised by the impact that wealth had on my life. Money's emotional. You know, I felt the impact as a parent. Where were we going to spoil our kids? I felt the impact as a sister. Was my brother resentful? I felt the impact as a friend. I felt like people started to look at me differently. And, you know, it was painful to feel my parents disapproved of what we suddenly had. So I wrote the book I really needed to read as I was sort of adjusting to this incredible fortune.
1: I read, well, I should say this. I listened to the book on Audible and I was so surprised in a really wonderful way because when I heard that it was going to be a memoir, so I i you know, I had done some research on your book, and then you it was said it's a memoir. I thought, man, how are you going to write two hundred and fifty to three hundred pages on that topic? And so as I listened to it, I realized what a challenge it would be to write that memoir, because you kept me listening. I wanted to keep listening. One of the scenes that I thought was so great, and maybe you can we can begin by you describing that scene was. In well, there's two actually that were just stunning to me. One was at your wedding when you were debating whether or not to use, I think it was your father's wine, but it cost five dollars per wine bottle to be opened and and you're agonizing about that. Could you just describe that scene and what was going on? That is just such a great example of this tension that you had inside your head.
2: There was a lot of tension in my head. I, you know, I grew up very frugal. Um, we had, I had middle-class values. I saved my pennies and sort of, you know, as a responsible daughter, I saved in my money and I, I, you know, managed my money and I kept it in, in a bank basically. And so suddenly when we had all this money and I had a hard time spending it because I, I wanted my identity with someone who was frugal and, and didn't spend and that served me well, but it also kind of, was strange now that I I really did have the opportunity to to spend. And you know, in my book, I really go through some of the big transitions of life and you've kind of hit on the, the wedding. And you know, so many people do get married so they can identify with this. And at the time I was also grappling with the fact that, wow, we could pay for this wedding. <laughs> and it was expensive and we could, you know, we were writing big checks. And because that was new to me, it was easy, much easier to write the big checks, you know, for the location and for the band. And and, you know, we I could do that. But because I had grown up so frugal and so aware of the value of a dollar, I mean, I remember, you know, minimum wage when I was in high school was like $3.35. So it took me an hour to earn, earn $3.35. three So I knew what $5 meant. It was that $5 corkage fee. So it really, I really struggled with the idea of paying someone to open the wine and paying them $5 to open our wine and pour our wine. So. The $5 was hard for me to pay, but I played a trick in my head at the time, like, well, okay, so let's just think of it as someone, I'm going to pay $300 to have someone open all the wine and pour it for our guests. And that way I could kind of make sense of it for myself. Um, And I think, you know, my book talks a lot about this with money and how it is very emotional and it's not always logical the way we approach things because of what we've learned in our childhood. So For me, it was sort of trying to make sense. I mean, my whole book was truly trying to make sense of this incredible fortune that we had. So, you persevered
1: for 14 years. So, take us on that little narrative arc from the time you said or thought about, "Eh, I think this could be a book. And what were like the highs and lows of that arc?
2: Oh my gosh, there were many. So, I started out like, okay, this year, this is the year I'm going to write a book. And I really had, I really thought it would take a year. I, don't, I had no idea how long this would take and what a journey it would be. And so persevere. And I, I have a lot of tenacity, luckily, because I, there were a lot of highs and lows and a lot of rejections and a lot of struggle along the way. But I also really loved the process. And it really started out because I, I, and I started out sort of teaching myself to write. Hmm. And at first it was really therapeutic. I was trying to get my experiences down on paper, grappling with kind of what this experience was about, because I think we, we have such a narrow view of wealth in our country. We, we see the Kardashians, we know about Elon Musk, we, we, we wow. see kind of the highly visible wealth. And I, like everyone else, kind of thought that's what wealth was. And so when I kind of became one of those people who I kind of had grown up pre- prejudiced against, I was like, oh, wait a second, I'm still me you know, and I still make mistakes. I'm still, you know, I still have insecurities. And well, this, this, there's also these other sort of strangenesses between other family members. So it was just, you know, trying to wrestle with kind of what it was all about. And so I first just was trying to piece together my experiences in a way that was, was, you know, understandable and then trying to talk about money in a way that was not off-putting or offensive. So I was grappling with those things early on. And, you know, I look back at my writing in the first, well, year, two, three, four years, (laughs) I was kind of writing a diary. So it was just really quite flat around like the experiences that I had. And I remember it was about four years in, I went to the Squaw Valley Writers Workshop Hmm. and, and there I was really excited because I, you know, had been, Doing this on my own, and I was wanted to hear from other writers. And I remember being in the, you know, at, at the, the, the conference, it was over a weekend, and the woman said, You know, you are with, you know, fellow writers. Everyone here loves the written word, shares a love for the story. Um, it's gonna be a great weekend of learning together. And I was excited to learn from other people until I realized I had to introduce myself. And <laughs> the first thing I had to tell people was what I was writing about. So it was quite awkward to say, hi, I'm Jennifer. Yeah, I have a lot of money. <laughs> and it was oh, wow. actually painful. I spent time crying in my room. I, it was really difficult. And I, I remember saying to one woman, you know, I'm writing about wealth. And she looked at me and she's like, you don't look rich. Oh, oh, oh. Wow. And I'm not sure I took that as a compliment. But, yes. you know, so I, I, it, my subject matter was added to kind of the complexity of kind of writing the book. But actually there, and this was four years in, I, I, I met an editor who loved the concept, loved my, you know, the pieces that I had brought, And he really helped me kind of along the way. He, I, I wasn't ready yet, so I was still working on the manuscript. Um, but he introduced me to an agent, uh, a big agent in New York, who, who loved it, took it on right away. This was probably, this was in two thousand. Eleven she took it site on sort of like I didn't have to do a proposal or anything i, she, I she'd just seen my manuscript, and she took it to all the top eight top publishers, and everyone rejected it wow so. That was difficult, but I kept, I, so I regrouped and I thought, okay, I'll write something else. I, I've I've kind of lost your question. Now I'm just like telling you my, my sort no, of. No, no, <laughs> keep going. Okay. Keep going. Yeah. I, I thought, well, I'll write about something else, but I really couldn't let go of this. It really, I felt like it had started out me trying to grapple with my, my feelings around this, but I felt like this story needs to be told. No one is, I'm not unique. People come into wealth or create wealth in their lives. And so it's really for anyone who has more money and maybe a lot more money than they had growing up and kind of the issues that come up because, you know, income inequality happens within our families. There's issues that come up with our parents or siblings with friends. So I really wanted to get the book out to demystify wealth, humanize the experience for other people and for people like me who were, were we're grappling with some of the same issues. Like, you know, how do you travel with another family that doesn't share your resources? Or how do you kind of deal with a friend's jealousy when you want to share what's going on in your life, but you're worried that it'll upset? So I wanted to share my story because I think we learn from each other's stories and it helps us understand our own stories. So I really felt a real drive to, to share this story. So even after those rejections, I was like, well, obviously, I don't think the writing was right, and I don't think the manuscript was right. I got to go back. And I started reworking, rewriting, and rewrote the book for another few years. And then I went to I went to the um, Pacific Northwest Writers Conference. And it was encouraging because the people that I met, the other writers I met, were very encouraging and thought it was a great idea. But I didn't get any traction with any agents or any editors there. And then I went to the San Francisco Writers Workshop. In let's see, probably 2018, 2017. And I had a couple of agents that were very interested in the book. Then I had a similar experience when I, when my agent, my agent, this, the agent I kind of got through that was um, because my other agent dropped me after, after I had gotten this other agent, we had rejects from all the publishers. She dropped me. So now I have this new agent. She worked, we worked on a proposal together and she took it out to, to, more publishers. And it was, she said she'd never experienced anything like it because she had such incredible interest from people. She thought she was going to have an auction and there was, you know, she's like high level people really, you know, wanted and liked the idea. But the problem was, you know, in the publishing world, you have to sell it into a group of people. So you have to get buy-in from the sales force and the marketing people and the PR yeah. people and the other editors and inevitably there was always a sense of like who cares about the plight of the rich yes. yes there's real bias in our country and that came up and so she said she'd never seen anything like because there was all this interest and then it just no you know no one actually bit and we d- didn't get offers so again, fighting the bias that exists was part of the process. And, and I think it's, this is a bigger issue for the publishing industry at at large. I mean, are we hearing enough black voices? Are we hearing enough women's voices? Are we hearing enough indigenous voices and immigrant voice? I mean, so I I can get on my little um, tirade about the publishing industry in general, but so I felt the kind of lack of, of interest in, in my voice, because I don't know if, people could 100% relate to it. did find a, a great publishing house, a small nonprofit um, publisher out of Pasadena, Red Hand Press, who published a lot of poetry, LGBTQ voices, um, just different voices, and were interested in the, in the book. And it actually ended up being a really great place to get published. But it took 14 years
1: wow. um, to
2: get there. I, I hear a couple different things on what you're saying. And the first thing that struck me is
0: that you spent quite a few years just trying to to wrap your own emotion and mind around your personal journey. And memoirs are just intrinsically difficult because you're dealing with stuff that you maybe never actually um, worked through before and put, put language to. And I'm wondering if you could speak a little bit more to that, what that process was like for you and maybe encourage people who for the first time are writing things that they've never written about, but they, they know that they want to write it, write about it.
2: I knew I wanted to go as deep as I could get and really examine the issues that were coming up, the emotions around those. And um, so I tried to write just for myself and really kind of dig in and really get all the different perspectives and issues I was feeling around a certain topic. So I did a lot of kind of navel gazing, I guess, in, in my writing and then got that down on paper and then kind of would go back in and kind of clean it up or say, you know, am I just, is this going anywhere? Or I mean, it was a lot of writing and rewriting and working through. And I knew that if I were interested in it, if I was engaged in it, that probably other people would be. So that kind of kept me going thinking that. And I also knew I wanted to write scenes. I wanted to create, yeah, a scene around that, that, that told a story that, or that gave an emotion or. Um, so I really worked on kind of specific instances and, and and scenes. I I know at one point I really had to kind of develop myself as a character. Hmm. So that was interesting because I hadn't really recognized that before, and I and I that made me think, well, what is the story all about, and what how do I develop as a character. And I think that's an important part to get to when you're writing a memoir, because if you're in the weeds around it, if you're really kind of still struggling and you don't have the perspective, you can't kind of shape it. And, and so I, I had the time to kind of do both. Like I was in the weeds for a long time trying to figure things out. And then once I kind of had the distance and the, and the objectivity, um, I could kind of better shape the, the, the character arc.
0: And what was, how would you define that narrative arc um, that you go through and you take the leader on? Where, where, did, where do you start and where did you want to take them? And how, how did you do that?
2: Yeah, I really wanted the reader to identify with me at the beginning. Well, I, I guess there's, you have to know who your audience is. Um, and for a long time, I wrote, I was writing for any reader, but I realized that my, really my core audience is, people like me <laughs> who have yeah. more money than they had growing up and who those people get it. They've had the experience themselves and it's really validating and um, a relief to hear someone say some of the things that people are feeling. Yeah. And I know this because towards the end, I thought, well, I, I've told my story. I want to include other voices in my in my book. And so I want to interview other women. And even though I grappled with all this uh, for myself in a book, it was really hard to reach out to people and say, will you talk to me about money? And will you talk to me about wealth? And it took me, I had to have some courage to send out emails saying, will you talk to me? And when I did, I sent some notes out with kind of an outline in the book. Will you talk to me about your experience with wealth? And the response really was amazing. Mm. People wrote back right away. They said, I think about these things all the time, but I never talk about them. And then when we got together and I was interviewing them, I think it really was a true sense of relief for people to be able to share some of their experiences. And it was wonderful for me. We talked about our kids. We talked about our parents. We weren't alone in this experience. We weren't crazy. And this, and and it was kind of more challenging than we would have ever guessed, especially because there is so much silence and so. You know, through that process, I really, you know, all along the way, I also kind of realized how I wanted to, the book to help get us talking to each other, mm-hmm. um, and I think that can be at any level. You don't have to have wealth to know that money can kind of get create distance between it between people, and you know, and we avoid talking about things because it's uncomfortable. But I want to encourage people to, you know, talk to each other when issues come up around money, and talk to each other in their families around around wealth.
1: So what got resolved then? So you start out the narrative being young, like the scene where you talk to somebody at work about how many shares they had, and was was uncomfortable for me to, to listen, because, uh, listen to because, you know, that in, in where I grew up in, you know, in a very conservative German family in North Dakota. And to talk about money is just anathema, right? It's And so for you to ask somebody how many shares they had, and then to go to your HR person you reported to, it was, that was such an uncomfortable scene for me, but yet it was so poignant because, because of, I could see myself doing that. And so, so you started out the journey as uh, a little bit confused and you go out through this journey, through your, through the engagement, through the marriage, through your life. Where did you end up on money?
2: What got resolved?
1: Where, yeah, yeah, what got resolved in your mind?
2: I started out saying kind thinking of the, I wanted people to relate to me and, and take them through the journey, experience it along with me. Um, so I'm glad to hear that, that you felt that. I, I also did not talk about money. And when I was growing up, it was impolite. When I asked about my dad's salary, it was none of my business. And so that's where I grew up too. And so to have that conversation really was, it, it was not right or, or it was bad right. of me to kind of bring this up. And then I felt all sorts of shame and guilt. Yeah. And, and, and I think, you know, the bigger arc is that like the shame, I guess one way to describe the journey is to tell you that the titles that my book has been. So when I first started writing the book, it was the embarrassment of riches. And then it was the tiniest violin because, Oh, woe is me. Yeah. And then it was, it's not about the money and then conf- Confessions of a Rich Woman, and then it was The Last Taboo, um, and then it was What We Don't Talk About When We Don't Talk About Money, and then it landed on We Need to Talk, A memoir about Wealth, which I'm happy about because it's a real call to action. So yeah. as you talk, so, so, the, so for me, it was moving as a character out of this sense of surprise and guilt and shame and embarrassment to suddenly have these riches. And to, to get to a place of, you know, realizing that it's really not about the money. I mean, yes, it's wonderful to live in, an, in a big house, but it's really about who's in that house with you. And it's the relationships in our lives that, that matter most and also feeling a sense of meaning and purpose. And so for me, it was moving out of any sense of shame and fear and into a sense of more purpose with my life and, and the importance of my relationships, our family, my daughters, friends, community, um, the pieces of, of, of life that make it worth living, um, which is really our connections with other people. So it's, go- it's getting to a place where, you know, even though I am this very fortunate person, I, I'm an okay person and I can, I can see what really is important in life. So it's working through all the issues that that came up um, around money because, and getting to the point of like, okay, now we really need to be talking to each other and hopefully getting people who read the book to have that conversation. The end of every chapter, I included prompts for conversation and contemplation to help people, you know, have the conversation they need to have with that aunt who owes them money or, or with the sister who's, always asking for money or, or, I mean, all the issues that we kind of avoid, trying to help people get to a place where they can have the conversation because at the other side of those conversations is really a chance to connect, a chance to learn, just it's important for us to kind of work through our money issues. And so that, so my book really is about me working through my money issues and getting to a point, point of comfort, although it's still uncomfortable. I mean, money is very complicated.
0: Yeah, it sounds like in hearing you talk about it, you're taking it from this taboo topic to something that should be talked about. And so you're creating this pathway for people to have conversations. So it's no longer taboo. I, I think that's genius. You talked earlier about wanting to create stories and scenes to help illustrate the points. And we get so many questions from writers talking about, you know, how much of this has to be absolutely... Perfectly resemblant of the actual moment, or and how so, how much did you fabricate to fill in the gaps? How much did you um, try to get exactly right? And where did you find that balance of making it an interesting story? So, adding some things and um, leaving out other things so that it, you could really connect with the reader. The yeah, the reader.
2: I mean, I'm very true to what happened from my perspective. So, I tried to say very true, I didn't, there was nothing made up. That said, I was you know they do include some dialogue. Was that exactly what was said? and probably not, but was that the emotion that came out of it, or was that the the gist yeah. of it? And I'm thinking of one of the scenes of or the the times in my life right when I was a new mom, and um you know as a new mom, I was incredibly amazed at this baby and and so in love, and it was like this curtain had lifted. I was in this world of parenthood and joining that mother's group and being part of that mother's group and bonding with all the other new moms who were experiencing what I was experiencing, um, the love and the, the, trying to keep, you know, comfort your child. And how do you you keep them from, you know, how do you get them to sleep through the night? And should you use a pacifier? And we had just so many things in common and it was such a bonding experience and, and kind of writing the scenes of being in that mother's group and how wonderful it was. And at the same time, this, other curtain had lifted. I had all this wealth and I really didn't want anyone to know about that because I wanted to connect with the women in my group. And I was worried that, you know, wealth is not a connecting force necessarily. And people, I worried about the judgment. I worried that um, people would not think I could relate to their problems or that I didn't have any problems of my own or that, you know, I was just another new mom. So, you know, trying to write that and figure out how do I kind of get all that out and and how I just wanted to show how I was trying to keep all that hidden at at this very same time that I felt very bonded. Um, Mm. So writing those scenes, I thought it was, it was cathartic, but it was also like interesting to me to kind of figure out how to do it. And, and you asked about like how much is made up. So I think all the pieces, all the things that happened, those really happened, but the, the pieces that were made up was kind of the the detail of the, the exact words in in the dialogue that I created.
1: What would you say is the major difference between the draft that you submitted for publication in 2011 and the one that actually got published?
2: I spent so much time cleaning up every single sentence and going through it. And the thing I grappled with the most, and I'm not sure where it was in 2011, was this how do I start it and how do I end it? Initially, I started with the end. For a while, I started with us flying in a private jet. I started us. I started back before I met David, back before Microsoft, and I ended up. It ended up being much more linear than I had initially hoped. But I. It really that felt right to me to start in Microsoft at that moment of meeting David, joining Microsoft. I think Microsoft was interesting to people. So I, I started there. Um, and then I ended when by the time we got we left on this adventure as a family and followed our hearts and, and 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 took advantage of the freedom that we had in our lives to really do what felt right for us as a family. And we moved to Barcelona. So that was kind of the, the whole arc of it. When did
1: you say you did the most work on the scenes, like setting up the scenes like structurally what was the most uh the window of time in which you did the the most difficult work on the structure like what you just talked about was it after that draft in 2011 would you say that structure really changed between 2011 and what you have now
2: the structure didn't change as much I mean when I I think the initial structure minus the starting in the beginning that that continued to kind of change and, and, and change again, um, where I started and where I ended. But the overall structure stayed fairly similar. So it kind of followed my life going through transitions of, you know, getting engaged and getting married and having, you know, a baby and buying a home and um, those sort of things kind of continued. And then I sort of did more thematic chapters around what is enough and and how do you give to charity? And what? how do you give to family members? So it kind of got more thematic towards the end. And that kind of stayed similar. I, th- I think I had it in three different sections for a while. So the stru- overall structure kind of stayed the same. The, the development of me as a character sort of happened later on. And the scenes, I think, got better yeah. <laughs> just by reworking, reworking. You ask, you say, what draft? I'm like, I must have written... 300 drafts. I mean, if you pulled all that I'd written together, I've written like pretty much, I don't know, 12 books. So it was really, it, it was, and it, the manuscript was really big at a point. And then it kind of got smaller as I kind of honed in on what, what's working, what's not, what's telling. I really tried to keep myself accountable in terms of like, what does this scene do? Why, why is it here? Do I need this scene? Is it, what, what is the reader getting from this? So I tried to do that in a disciplined way um, and cut, you know, you always hear the idea of like killing your darlings and I killed some darlings along the way. I mean, just little turns of phrase that I wanted to keep in. It was like, okay, this isn't really, this isn't of service to the larger picture. So I have to, you know, save that for later, whatever. How did you negotiate that basically kind of a
0: chronological um, structure around life transitions? And then you moved into more thematic, was that awkward to negotiate kind of like moving from a um, chronological to thematic or how did you negotiate that? I'm, I'm curious because I think some people in their mind think I either need to do a thematic, you know, memoir where I, I go on one theme per chapter or I do a chronological. How did you negotiate doing kind of two different kinds of structures
2: at once? I think it felt like the way to do what I wanted to do with the story and with my character, because I think at the beginning it was me in the weeds, just experiencing and, um, allow, allowing the reader experience with me. And then as I kind of got more comfortable with, with kind of our position and then, well, then it sort of naturally turned into more thematic writing. And I didn't have a, I didn't have a problem with that in my mind. It sort of worked for me. Yeah. Um, to kind of get to that more thematic, and then you know towards the end I go into the future. I go, I kind of look at like you know thinking about how do you keep from spoiling your kids, and yeah. I took a look at that as who I am, you know, when I was writing it, also kind of from when they were little. So it, 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 it I didn't have a problem with it. I, I felt okay about it. I didn't feel like I had to kind of continue along the same path actually that was sort of part of my evolution to get yeah. to a place where i could contemplate things rather than just living it
0: we've talked with a literary agent who said that too many people give up on pitching their book too soon and what i love about your story is that you stuck with it for you know a decade and a half almost and you pitched it and repitched it and trusted your work with you know multiple literary agents which is so hard when you've been disappointed so I mean, you talked already about how you wrote a book that you wish that had been available to you. Is that what kept you going, or how did you not like? Just how did I not give up? Rejection? I did not know.
2: I just kept. I mean, I think there was this desire within me to kind of get the story out. Then there was a desire to like, I want this for other people. Uh, people need to hear this story, and. There are people out there, and, and actually, you know, since the book's been out, people have sent me the most amazing notes, sort of saying, "Thank you, thank you, thank you for writing this book. It really resonated with me. It's going to help me talk to my family." So I feel like, okay, that I'm—I'm I'm so happy I got that book out for other people. And then there was a point of just like, you—I am going to do this. I mean, it just became just such a, a headstrong, like I am going to make this happen, and I just didn't give up. I it, and, and I can tell you I got so many rejections and <laughs> I actually got to a point that and this I at one point I said to my agent I was like I'm just going to self-publish and she said don't do it don't do it and I'm so glad that I didn't because the legitimacy of a of being published matters and so I do want to say to people yeah it's an option but if you have any other option don't self-publish because I, and ideally I can see how much being with one of the top publishers helps you because they make introductions, they introduce you to all the bookstores and they they do some marketing. I mean, not a lot, but but yeah. mostly you're on your own, mostly you're doing this on your but, but still if you can if you can get in with a top publisher, great. Right. But get yourself published. And I I at one point there was a publisher who wanted who had agreed to publish the book. And the more I looked at their other books and kind of what they represented, I even though I Desperately, and you know, wanted to be published. I couldn't get published by them. They didn't have my values, and so I said to my agent, "I'm like, that's the point where I said I'm just going to self-publish." And she said, "Well, no, no, let's find. You know, I have a couple other options, and that's where I found my current publisher, Red Hen Press. I'm not willing to to compromise my values for it, but I did really fight and and just didn't take no for an answer. And I believed in the story, and I believed in my message, and I'm glad I did.
1: Because if you don't, (laughs) nobody else will. Right. I mean, in a sense, you know, when people give up, there's a sense in which you're kind of giving up on something you believe in. And there may be a time to give up, I don't know. But what I love about your story is persistence, I think we all quit too soon on on different things in our lives. And and uh, and that that's a great, it's a great truth, I think, for our listeners is to persist. So what has surprised you in the promotional phase of this?
2: My publisher wanted to do a luncheon in New York before the book was out. And I, we, we were able to get maybe five different people to come to that lunch. And one of the people who was at that lunch ended up writing an article about um, me in, in Worth Magazine before the oh. book was out. So that kind of was the start of something. And I also got into um, Psychology Today in May, It was actually supposed to be kind of at the time of launch. So also I hit COVID. So my book was going to be launched um, in May of 2020. And when COVID hit, I was like, okay, we cannot, how tone deaf is it going to sound for me to be talking about wealth at this moment? this is wrong. I cannot publish now. So luckily my publisher was able to, and it wasn't obvious. I really had to push. For, I mean, that's, that's the other thing I had to push really be the advocate for my book, even though the publisher was, you know, wanting the same thing I did. I really had to advocate for my book and say, we cannot publish in May. We have to move it to the fall. And for them, they're a small publisher. They don't have a lot of money. It meant like warehousing books. So it was costing them money, but it, in the end, it was the right thing to do for the book. That surprised me, the kind of the the, I also had a lot of conversation with them about hardcover versus paperback and they couldn't really afford. The persistence didn't end once I had a publisher, I guess that was what surprised me, too. It wasn't like done. I have a publisher. It was a continued negotiation. a continued fighting for my book and for my story until that book was born um, in in September. And then it really did catch some great press. Um, I was in the New York Times. Paul Sullivan wrote about the book in Wealth Founders column, which was great. I also, okay, here's something that surprised me that I wouldn't do again. I interviewed with the New York Post. The interview was really great. The woman liked the book, but they, they are all about selling and they're about like clickbait titles yep. and they really dragged me through the dirt. Hmm. And it got a lot of hate. It got, it didn't necessarily surprise me, the backlash that I've gotten. It's sad. And I think it speaks to the need for the book itself. But I think based on that New York Post article, I think I got some, you know, one star reviews on Amazon from people who didn't even read the book. They just hate the idea of me. So that it didn't surprise me, but it's not, it's painful. I was in the New York, the San Francisco Chronicle. And then I started to get requests for podcasts like this one. And that, the other thing that surprised me is I spent, like you said, you know, 14 years heads down writing. Like I really would get up in the morning and get to my desk and write. And I loved that process. And I loved, I'm, I'm just being by myself and writing. That was fine. Um, so I wasn't sure how it would be to be out in the world talking about this thing that was initially I couldn't even write about. And now I was going to actually be in front of people talking about it. How was I able to do that? And yeah, my life is so different right now. I'm so in front of people talking out there, meeting people, making connections. I've opened up to this whole new kind of, I'm now much more involved in the philanthropic space with COVID. My husband and I took action and kind of really did more giving and, and kind of helped inspire others to give. So I'm in this new space that I think, it's all about talking about money. And I see it more, the more I kind of am out there talking, the more I realize that how important it is and how normalizing conversations within our families is the first step. We need to also normalize conversations within our society as a whole. Um, And yes, policy changes are needed. You know, I should pay more taxes. (laughs) Minimum wage needs to be higher. We need a stronger social safety. net. There's so many policy changes that are needed, but I think there's also change that needs to happen kind of at a personal level around talking about money so it's really the surprise is wow i am i'm pretty good at this and i also really feel even more passionate about now it's not getting my book out but getting my message out and my book has kind of become more of a calling card or like a, a tool of many that i have in in helping start these conversations and i I think I'm very lucky because many books, you know, have that window of six, eight weeks where they're, you know, you have the opportunity to, to make it. And I think my book is a little bit more evergreen because my audience is, is, is big. There's millions of people and, and I can find them in through philanthropic spaces, through financial spaces, um, with wealth managers. And so I've been out with family offices. I've been taught doing a lot of talks and started to do in-person talks. So it's really grown and been very exciting. You know,
1: as I listen to you, I mean, you really got a calling, you know, in my religious tradition, we'd call it a calling, right? Where you have something that is much bigger than you that you've given your life to, right? In the book, while it is now a tool and one piece of the whole, it still was in many ways the tool that enabled you to kind of create your thinking around it. What a gift that is. The thing that struck, struck me as you were talking about persisting even after you land an agent uh, or persisting even after you land a publisher, like even with that agent, you were saying, no, my values aren't with that firm. I'm, I'm probably going to self-publish. And then she says, well, hey, no, let's, you know, let's get persist but then you find a publisher and then you need to continue to advocate for yourself. So that's a great message for writers that in a sense, you have to advocate all the way through the process for yourself.
2: You really do. And yeah, you have to believe in what you're doing and stay true to yourself and keep going. Don't, don't take no for an answer because follow your, your, your heart and your, your desire to write that story.
0: That is a great note to end on. and. We're so grateful that you are sharing not only your message, but also just the process. This is so incredibly helpful for our audience. Before we um, move to our words of the episode, which we always end our podcast with, we want to ask you if you have a book that has changed your thinking or changed you um, in some big way.
2: Yeah. You know, I didn't read memoir before I started to write one. And I started, I was like, I need to read a bunch of memoir. And one of the first memoir I read was um, Dry by Augustine Burroughs. And I loved that book. I mean, it's all about being an alcoholic, which you think, oh, it's going to be such a heavy book. But he did such an amazing job with that book. and, And I think that book really was like yes, you can write an amazing memoir, and he obviously is an excellent memoirist, and he's written many books. But that book really stuck with me and kind of you know pulled me along as I was kind of thinking about how to how to write memoir. Yeah, that's awesome. Powerful. We will we'll add that to our show notes so people can yeah. look at it if they're is- houses. Also by Janet Walls. That was another memoir that that she started out. Her first scene was as a little girl you know, roasting a hot dog over the stove in her, in the trailer house that she was living in and it caught on fire. So like how to start that scene and how to kind of set the scene. And her story is all about growing up in poverty and kind of wrestling with that. Actually, it'll be in her introduction, her first scene is she's driving in a, maybe even in a limo. And she looks out the window and she sees her mom in a dumpster. wow wow so that's the power of scene I mean I could could recall that just now like because it was so impactful and well placed you're still instructing our audience even in this moment
0: which is if you're going to be writing a memoir spend some time reading some good memoirs because I think that that just is so instructional as you begin to think about shaping your own story so thank you for those recommendations that is fabulous and the importance of scene yeah wow We always say start closest to the action, you know, and that is a great scene. All right, Dave, before we say goodbye to Jennifer, should we share our words of the episode? We should. All right, I'll go first. So my word of the episode is canard, which is a false or unfounded report or story, especially a fabricated report. So I guess... Lots of people would call all the fake news out there as <laughs> a canard, right? The report about a conspiracy proved to be a canard would be a good use of that word. So canard, it's a, I think people misuse it as like a lie. I think I've misused it in that way. And really it's a false or unfounded report or story, not just um, not just a lie. So there you go.
1: Like how, how might you use that in a sentence? Like,
0: um, the report about the Senator and his salacious affair was a canard
1: often, Melissa, you have these words. I have never heard of it, but never heard before, but canard is one of those that you do hear regularly, but probably not used correctly. So
0: that's a great,
1: that's a great word of the episode.
0: All right, Dave, what's yours? So
1: mine is another one that is not like uncommon, but it's something that I got. I went, oh, I need to know what the exact nature of the word is. So it's festoon, like, or festooned. So it's this idea of adorning a place with ribbons, garlands, and other decorations. I was thinking this about our house. So uh, my mom, who's 87, sent me a picture on the phone uh, of her Christmas tree. My, My mom and dad's Christmas tree, they're still alive at 87. And so my wife was gone this weekend. I thought, eh, I'm going to give her a picture of all of the Christmas trees we have in our house. (laughs) And so we had 10. And so my wife is is Swedish in background. So when she decorates, it's like, woo. And so I took a picture of 10 Christmas trees. So this is how I use the word. Our house is festooned with 10 Christmas trees of various sizes, white lights and white candles.
0: Nice. I like it. I like to use that word, festooned.
1: (laughs) You are a festooner.
0: I'm a festooner. I do lots of festoonery. (laughs) I don't know if that's a word, but I will make it a word. All right. Well, that's a good note to end on. Jennifer, we want to thank you again for being with us today and just sharing your experience. So much wisdom in this podcast Mm -hmm. episode. I know it's going to be so helpful for people who are embarking on writing a book, writing a memoir, writing their story in any fashion. It's just so hard.
2: So thank you. Well, thank you. Thanks for having me on your show.
0: All right. I think that's a wrap. We will call it a show. I'm Melissa Parks.
2: And
1: I'm Dave Getz.
0: Now buckle up and write.